Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Uh, Most of you have probably seen the 1994 classic film, if you haven't, you need to, Forrest Gump. Um, Powerful, moving, one of the best films of all time, I think, but one of the most moving scenes in the movie takes place during the Vietnam War when Forrest rescues his superior officer, Lieutenant Dan, whose legs had been blown off in battle, and then subsequently Forrest loses his best good friend, Bubba, uh, in the same attack. Bubba, like Forrest, was a good man. He was a simple, but a kind and sweet man. Lieutenant Dan, on the other hand, is a mean, vulgar bully. Bubba wanted to live. He had dreams of one day returning home to the bayous, Alabama, and becoming a shrimping boat captain. While Lieutenant Dan desired to die in Vietnam. He had come from a long, proud military family who had lost a member fighting in every American war, and Lieutenant Dan felt it was his destiny to die with his men on the battlefield. And yet, much to his chagrin, Lieutenant Dan was saved, rescued by Forrest, but Forrest couldn't manage to save Bubba. And in his dying breaths, Bubba asked Forrest that age-old question that all of us who suffer in this life must wrestle with at various points. Forrest, why'd this happen? Lieutenant Dan similarly bemoans his fate when he wakes up alive in the hospital wing. Forrest, this wasn't supposed to happen. Not to me. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? The Bible doesn't turn a blind eye to this unfortunate and seemingly unjust reality of life. On the contrary, Scripture helps give voice to our righteous grievance. The prophets are especially concerned with it. Isaiah 57.1, the righteous man perishes and no one understands it. Jeremiah 12.1, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Habakkuk 1.13, Malachi 3.15, on and on the prophets. Question. In the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon laments that in my vain life I have seen that there is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The Psalms are full of such protest. Psalm 73, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. All in vain I have kept my heart clean, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked. God, I've lived for you, and this is the repayment I get. But the quintessential example, of course, is Job. The righteous sufferer who questioned God, why do the wicked live? and reach old age, and grow mighty in power. Job exclaimed, 
On the other hand, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar, though I am without transgression. Sometimes the righteous perish while the wicked prosper. And sometimes the righteous prosper while the wicked perish. Who can make sense of it all? Well, this morning we're going to attempt to. And to do so, we'll be considering the stories of three men. The Apostle James, the Apostle Peter, and King Herod Agrippa I. All of whom we're going to find in Acts chapter 12. As we continue our exposition of the book of Acts, we're temporarily skipping the rest of Acts chapter 11, where we left off last week. God willing, I'm going to go back and finish chapter 11 with you next Sunday, uh, since that made for such a perfect church in the park message. Uh, But fortunately, we don't even have to get too far out of order chronologically here in our study, because chapter 12 opens this morning with the words, about that time. And so they are roughly contemporaneous, end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. And as chapter 12 opens, we're going to see two good men here, James and Peter, one of whom will perish and the other of whom will be delivered and prosper. And then we're going to see a wicked man, King Herod, who prospers for a time before ultimately facing his demise. And so we get every possible permutation of good and bad people receiving good and bad circumstances. And with each of those four combinations, we're going to ask the same question, shared by Bubba and Lieutenant Dan, shared by both King Solomon and the suffering Job. God, why? Why? That's our question four times this morning. So would you stand with me as you're able to this morning out of respect for the reading of God's Word from Acts chapter 12, Verses 1 through 24, I'll read from the ESV, Uh, words will be on the screen for you, and we'd love to give you a Bible this morning, bless you with a Bible if you don't have one at the info bar. But hear the word of the Lord. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people to kill him. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, When Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. 
when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea to spend time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and when they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased, and it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it gives voice to the deep questions of our heart, the wrestlings, the longings for, for justice, for goodness, for salvation, for hope and our despair. And God, we thank you that it gives us answers, that we can come this morning and sit under the authority of your word and be reminded of the answers of why you do let good, the good suffer, why you do let the evil prosper at times. Father, I pray that as we do that as we sit and we listen now for your spirit for your voice through me as your imperfect messenger would you empty me and make little of me so that you can make much of Jesus we need to hear from you your people need to hear from you this morning would you speak would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see behold your glory and would you be glorified in our time together in your word this morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. First question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? Answer, God lets bad things happen to good people because God gets glory when he sustains us. When he sustains us. We're introduced to all three of our main characters in the first two verses here, for starters. We hear that Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, this particular King Herod, namely Agrippa I, came in a long line of Herods 
that were notorious for attacking God's people. His grandfather was Herod the Great, who had attempted to kill the baby Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Not so great. His uncle, Herod Antipas, had beheaded John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 4 and refused to exonerate Jesus before his crucifixion in Luke 23. And even his son, Herod Agrippa II, we're going to hear about later in Acts chapter 26, because he's going to send the Apostle Paul to Rome in chains, where Paul would ultimately be martyred. So quite a lineage. But Herod Agrippa I here is evil in his own right, and we hear in verse 2 that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this is our second main character, James. This is James, the disciple turned apostle, not to be confused with James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the author of the book of James in the New Testament, who will later become a leader in the Jerusalem church. Peter is going to reference that James later in this chapter, actually, in verse 17. But this James is the James who had been in Jesus' innermost circle, Peter, James, and John. But now he becomes the first of the apostles to be martyred. But he won't be the last. We're going to hear, in fact, 11 of the 12 apostles would go on to die for their faith in Christ. Why does God let that happen? Why does God let someone like James die? Why did God let Peter die later, eventually? Delivers him here for a time, and then he'll let Peter die. Eventually, again, nearly all of his apostles, why does God let them die? Why does, why does God allow you and me to continue to suffer today? Well, Scripture offers many answers to that question, but perhaps the most prominent among them is that God gets glory when he sustains us amidst our suffering. History is filled with the stories of Christian martyrs, just like James, who marched joyfully to their deaths, in full confidence of the eternal blessed hope that awaited them on the other side of the sword, the other side of the flames, the other side of the Colosseum. Just imagine what a witness that must have been to the onlookers there at James's execution that day. We will never know until we get to heaven just how many sinners were saved on that day. When they came out to hear James renounce his faith in Jesus and beg for mercy and not the sword, and instead what they heard him sing were hymns of praise that he was counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ Jesus as Lord. What kind of unearthly hope can sustain such an unimaginable joy in the midst of such unbearable suffering. It is this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If it is true, as we saw last week in Acts 10 and 11, that God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance and saving faith in Jesus, and if it is true, as we've seen all throughout the first 11 chapters of Acts now, that God wants to use us, his followers, as his witnesses to those in need of Christ, and that God will use any means necessary to accomplish that, then it stands to reason that God will even use, maybe especially use, our suffering as a powerful testimony to the lost. And time and time again, Scripture attests to this, that God allows even the righteous, His beloved sons and daughters, to go through hardships in this life so that He can prove that He alone has the power to sustain you through the storms of life. 
when you're in your own dark night of the soul, God, I can't make it anymore. I, I cannot get through this. You know, people say wrongly, sometimes in the church, God won't give you more than you can handle. He absolutely will, and he does so that he can prove it's not more than he can handle. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 63, 8, you have been my hope. My soul clings to you. God, it's got to be you to get me through this storm. Your right hand upholds me. And my favorite, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where the Apostle Paul prays to God for relief from his own suffering. God, would you save me? And then he writes, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. To which Paul responds, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Maybe that's some of you this morning. You've prayed and prayed and prayed for healing, but God has continued to let you suffer from that chronic debilitating depression, anxiety, heart failure, cancer, Alzheimer's, financial distress, marital problems. And I look around the room and I can't help but think of your individual stories that I'm blessed to know as your pastor. I see it on your faces this morning. I see it every week in your prayer requests. Some, some of you, it's the same prayer request week after week. And it breaks my heart for you as your pastor to see you struggle like that. And yet, even as I pray with you for your healing, I also pray that in the meantime, that Christ's power might prove to be perfect in your weakness. That God's grace might prove sufficient for you. Both for your sake as well as for the sake of the unbelievers around you who are watching they're watching that they might see that their other family members their other friends they're suffering from the same depression the same cancer the same financial woes the same marital struggles and yet in their unbelief they take the advice of job's wife who told him to curse god and die and if if, if you have no hope in christ that's the that's the best advice you've got curse God and die. And so that's their response. But then they watch you suffer from the same cancer, from the same struggles, and they watch you suffer differently with a peace that surpasses understanding, with a joy that eclipses your present circumstances, with a hope that transcends the brokenness of this world. Because you know that your peace and your hope and your joy are not ultimately to be found in this world. They are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus, your Savior. And you know that he has promised to sustain you all the way to the end until the day he takes you home. God allows bad things to happen to good people so that he can get glory from sustaining us. We're just getting started. Number two. He also lets good things happen to bad people because God gets glory when he shows us mercy. Why didn't God put Herod to death immediately when he hatched this plan to kill James and Peter? I mean, if Herod was such a bad dude 
And if God was planning to execute him eventually anyway, why not just do it right here in verse 1 when Herod begins laying violent hands on the church before he ever killed James, before he imprisoned Peter? And let's not forget about those poor, those poor soldiers in verse 19 who Herod puts to death as well. God could have saved a lot of lives if he had just stepped in right here in verse 1. So why did he wait to execute justice? In a word, God is patient because he is so merciful. God is full of undeserved kindness. God gave even a wicked sinner like King Herod every possible opportunity to repent and turn back to him, just like he had the, the wicked Canaanites in the Old Testament, even allowing his own people Israel to stay in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, while God was patiently, mercifully waiting on them to repent. Because Psalm 145.9, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made, even the wicked. Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 5.45, that God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good alike, and God sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. We call it God's common grace. It's his good gifts that are common to all of humanity, irrespective of our morality or lack thereof. God has given all of us the gift of life, the air in our lungs, the food in our bellies, the sun on our faces, the rain on our lawns, the love of our families, the joy of cheering the blues on to another playoff run. These are God's good gifts that he shares. He gives, he, he, God blesses even those who hate him with common grace. But scripture is clear that his common grace, God's mercy toward even the wicked, is intended to turn us toward him. Those gifts are meant to point us to the giver. Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because Ezekiel 33.11, the Lord declares, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from his way and live. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet, by the way. Christ promised to return and to make all things new, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, no more sickness, no more death. It's going to be a glorious day. So what is he waiting on? Well, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, Jesus is waiting on us to share the gospel with them so that even more folks, even more unbelievers might be saved. That's what he's waiting on. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter says, count it, count the patience of the Lord then as salvation. Now, I know they say that patience is a virtue, but be honest this morning, how many of you really enjoy being patient? You just love a good wait? Like nothing excites you, like a traffic jam, a long line at Costco checkout, the DMV, the, the waiting room in the doctor's office, that's your jam. That's none of us, right? So the idea here that God 
could just snap his fingers. This very moment, God could just say the word and the trump would resound and Jesus would descend and those of us who have been born again would experience instantly literal heaven on earth. All those problems I mentioned in point number one, your anxiety, your Alzheimer's, your crushing debt, all instantly gone. That sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? So maybe some of you here this morning are tired of waiting for that day, that glorious day, and you're praying this morning, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Scripture invites us to pray that. But even so, you need to be careful what you pray for. Don't forget about the folks on your Acts 1-8 prayer initiative list. This coming Wednesday and the 18th day of every month this year, we've been praying and fasting together as a church for the loved ones in our lives who do not yet have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's not forget about them when we pray Maranatha. Because if Jesus returned this afternoon, you know where they would spend the rest of eternity. I thank the Lord that he didn't return in March of 2012. That he tarried at least until April for me. And I praise God that in his mercy, he allows good things, even the very best things, like salvation, to happen to bad people, even people like me. That I was dead, dead in the trespasses and sins in which I once walked, following the course of this world, by nature a child of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved me. Even when I was dead in my trespasses, God made me alive together with Christ. By grace, I have been saved. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward me in Christ Jesus. Praise God that he gets all the glory from saving sinners like me from showing me all the mercy that is now mine in Christ Jesus, my Savior. Is that your story this morning, friend? If it's not yet, it can be. Just give your life to Jesus this morning. It's that simple. You say, but I'm a bad person, Pastor. You don't know the awful things that I've done. I know King Herod killed James. And he tried to kill Peter, killed a bunch of innocent soldiers, and God gave him a second chance, and a third chance, a fourth chance. I'd be willing to swap stories with you this morning, this afternoon after the service is over, and go toe-to-toe with anyone in here, swap stories on who was the worst sinner before God got a hold of us. Paul has already claimed the title in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said, I'm chief of sinners, but I'm claiming second place. So at best, you're bronze. God has saved worse than you. Repent and trust in Jesus today, and you will be saved. The worse you were, the more glory God gets from showing you his mercy. 
Don't deprive him of that glory this morning. Micah 7.18 says God delights in showing us mercy. Don't deprive God of the joy of pouring out his grace and his undeserved favor and love on you this morning. It is his delight as your good heavenly father to give good gifts to his children. And there's no greater gift than salvation, eternal life in Christ. And no matter how bad you think you were, no matter how bad you still are, God's goodness is bigger. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Praise the Lord. Still, just getting started. Number three, sometimes God lets good things happen to good people because God gets glory when he saves us. Now, quickly, aside, some of you may be getting hung up on this idea of good people. You say, doesn't the Bible say that no one is righteous? Yes, Romans 3. But it also says that Noah was a righteous man, that Job was a blameless and upright man. Proverbs 13, 22 distinguishes a good man from a wicked sinner. So how do we reconcile this? Well, Romans 3 is just saying that no one is so righteous as to be perfect. No one is so righteous that they don't need a Savior. But Scripture really does make these categories and call some people good and other people's bad. Some people are righteous and other people wicked. Some people are Peter's and others are Herod. And sometimes God gets glory from saving the Peter's from the Herod's like here. Now, that's not always the case. Again, God obviously had a different plan for James. And we need to keep in mind, both were apostles. Both were in Jesus' innermost circle. Both were faithful. Both were being fervently prayed for by the church. Peter wasn't any holier than James. Peter wasn't any more important. He wasn't any more loved by God, or I would argue even more used by God. I trust that God used James's death every bit as, he used P- as much as he used Peter's rescue in God's own ways, his own providence for his own glory. But there can be no doubt that God was glorified to save Peter. And I do apologize that this is the main part of the story, the best part of the story, and yet I'm going to kind of fly through this, so hang with me. But I want to quickly draw your attention to 11 takeaways that I think we can glean, don't laugh, from this spectacular uh, supernatural story of salvation. 11 quick takeaways. Number one, just how great was God's saving work here? Well, verse 4, Peter had four squads of soldiers guarding him. That's 16 soldiers, but you and I know that it could have been 16,000 soldiers. Would have made no difference. Still no match for our God, right? Number two, how did God accomplish his saving work? Verse five, through the earnest prayers of his church. So if you're here this morning and you've ever wondered, well, why should I even bother praying if God's got to be the one to do all the action anyway? The answer is because God acts through the prayers of his people. Now, God's going to do the saving. You're called to do the praying. Number three, how in the world was Peter sleeping in that prison cell? Verse six, 
he's stuck between two soldiers bound with two chains. I bet you rap fans didn't know two chains was biblical. A couple of us sinners got that reference. But Peter probably didn't get a bed in prison back then. He's on the cold, hard ground. And let's not forget the biggest factor of all. He knows he's going to die the next day. If you know you were going to die the next morning, how much sleep are you getting the night before? I don't know, I don't know about you. There's not enough Ambien in the pharmacy for me. So how could Peter possibly get to sleep here? Well, in a word, because P- Peter trusted in the Lord. Peter had faith. Peter had the kind of faith that we find in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when King Nebuchadnezzar gave them one last chance to worship him before he threw them in the fiery furnace and they replied, listen, God can save us. He will save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're still going to worship him alone. He's still our God. Can you say that this morning, brother or sister? in the midst of your own fiery furnace, in the midst of your own prison cell? Can you say that this morning? Can you rest easy, trusting that God can save you? He will save you. But even if he doesn't save you in the way that you want, in the way that you're praying for, even if God doesn't cure your sickness, even if he doesn't alleviate your mental illness, even if God doesn't fix your marriage, doesn't make your debt go away, even if God chooses instead to sustain you in your suffering like he did James, instead of saving you from it like he did Peter, can you still rest easy trusting in God's sovereign will and good purposes and plan for your life? You can if you know Jesus. Because you can say, like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, and as our opening hymn this morning so poignantly paraphrased for us, be still and remember the worst that can come but shortens our journey and hastens us home. At the very worst that this world can throw at me just leaves me in heaven with Jesus. I can't remember who it was. It's probably good that I can't remember who because I would embarrass you. But somebody last week in the foyer, I was giving you such a hard time because someone, I asked you, how you doing? And one of you replied, I'm all right. I'm still here. It's better than the alternative. And I said, I sure hope not. (laughs) I really hope not because, friends, there's only two alternatives to being alive in this world. And if this is truly living your best life now, you are in trouble. I mean, for eternity. No, Paul said, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Uh, Don't cry for me when I'm gone. Uh, Maybe that's how Peter was sleeping this night. He's thinking, finally, I get to go home. Do your worst, Herod. Please. Number four, why did the angel tell him to get dressed in verse 8? Just like God had with the Israelites before he led them into freedom from Egypt, God told them to eat the Passover meal with their belts fastened and their sandals on. Why? Because God never just leads us out of something. He's also leading us into something even better. So God prepares us for what lies ahead. God saves us for a purpose. Number five, what do you do when the way forward seems impossible? I mean, Peter had talked to angels before. 
had visions of angels, but he'd never seen one, much less heard an angel, heard of an angel breaking someone out of prison. Verse 9, what do you do? When you, when, when you, the way forward seems impossible, verse 9, you just keep trusting. You just keep walking by faith and not by sight. Peter just keeps taking the next step. Sometimes that's all you can do. Just put one foot in front of the next, right? And trust God to keep guiding you. Trust God to keep giving you the strength that you don't have in yourself. Do it again and again and again. Just one more step, one more step, and trust him. One step at a time. Number six, what do you do when the way forward is impossible? Not just seems impossible, but it is impossible. Because I don't know how heavy a locked city gate made out of iron would have been in the first century. How many men it would have taken even once that gate is unlocked, to have opened and moved that gate? None of my commentaries, unfortunately, answer that question for me this week, but I'm guessing it was downright immovable, impossible. But guess what? Someone forgot to tell that to God. Just ask the stone that was rolled at the tomb in the garden what happens when God says to move. It's when Peter walks up to the gate in verse 10, it opened them of its own accord. The Greek word used here is automate. This is the world's first automatic gate. <laughs> so what do you do when you are facing the impossible in your life? You trust God to do the impossible for you. Number seven, what do you do when you realize that God has saved you? Simply verse 11, you worship Him. You worship Him. Number eight, what else do you do? Verse 12, you go share that good news with others. You testify. Peter runs to the house of Mary, John Mark's mom, where he knows that the church has been praying for him, which brings us to point number nine. What do you do when you're not sure if your prayers are successful? When the church had been praying for James, and he gets beheaded anyway. And their prayers didn't seem to work, not in the way that they had hoped when they've been praying for Peter, but so far to no avail. As far as they know, he's still stuck in the prison. What do you do? Verse 12, you just keep praying. You pray some more. Keep praying and clinging to God's promises to listen and answer prayer, even if it's not the way that we want. Number 10, what do you do when your faith grows so weak that you lose all hope that your prayers are effective? that God is still listening to you. Because to the church's credit here, in verse 12, we hear they are still busy praying for Peter, but to their discredit, they apparently believe, judging by verse 15, that it's more likely that Peter's guardian angel has now left him to die and that he has come to deliver the bad news to the church than it is for them to believe that God could have actually delivered Peter from death. Their faith has failed. So what do we do when our faith is that weak? Friends, that's when you thank God for his promise, 2 Timothy 2.13, that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful. That God's faithfulness is bigger than your faithlessness. No amens. No one's saved here this morning. No? Can I get an Amen. God's faithfulness is bigger than your faithlessness. That deserves an amen. I didn't make it up. It's, biblical. it's just 2 Timothy 2.13. And so Peter just keeps knocking. 
And they finally let him in, and they all freak out, and he tells them to pipe down. He's still a fugitive on the run, and a jailbreak does you no good if you end up back in prison anyway because Rhoda's so excited. She, she just makes a, a disturbance, the, wakes up all the neighbors who call the police about a noise, noise complaint. And so Peter quiets them down. He tells them the whole story. He tells them to share the good news with Jesus' half-bro- uh, half-brother James and the others. And then we come to the biggest question of all, point number 11. Why did God save Peter anyway? Why did God save Peter and not James? God saved Peter, verse 17, because God's not done with Peter yet. He's got more work for Peter. James had fulfilled his assignment in this life. Run the good race, fought the good fight. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome home. But God's got more for Peter to do. More unbelievers for Peter to evangelize. More new Christians for him to disciple. More churches for him to plant. More gospel for Peter to preach so that God might get the glory through Peter's continued ministry. Brothers and sisters, if God has not yet taken you home this morning, that's why he still got you here. God has left you here for now because he's not yet done using you in the lives of those around you for their good and for his glory. So let's do it. God gets glory from saving us. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will exult over you with loud singing. God delights to save you. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of it delivers him out of them all. Psalm 37, uh, 39 and 40, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them because they take refuge in him. And of course, uh, everyone's favorite, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even for James, it all worked together for good. Work together for good for Peter, too, just in a different way. God lets good things happen to good people because he gets glory when he saves us and gives you a testimony. Lastly, number four, God eventually lets bad things happen to bad people because God gets glory when he shows us justice. God showed Herod mercy for a time. But just like all the wicked, Herod's time for repentance eventually ran out. So in verse 23, when the people of Tyre and Sidon worshipped him as a god, we, we read that immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, and Herod was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. If you noticed a recurring theme here in all four of our questions and answers, why does God let bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people? Why does God let anything happen, ultimately, one way or another? (coughs) It is for his own glory. It is for God's glory. And God is clear in his word. Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord, and my glory I give to no other. I will get glory, God says. 
And so I need to warn you this morning, friend, that Scripture is clear (coughs) that if you fail to give God the glory that is due His holy name, if you refuse to give God the glory for which He's created you, that was His purpose in creating you, if you refuse to do it for long enough, your time eventually will run out too. Ezekiel 18.20, the person who sins will die and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Proverbs 11.21, be assured, an evil person will not go unpunished. Isaiah 13.11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And what will be their punishment? Most terrifying of all, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Eternal judgment is reserved for those who in their self-centered pride would dare to reject Jesus, would dare to be so foolish as to reject so great a salvation. Friends, that does not have to be your story this morning. Today can be the day of your salvation. Repent of your sins, throw yourself on the undeserved mercy of God who poured it out on you in Christ Jesus, his son, and you will be saved. But rest assured, one way or another, God will be glorified by saving you, by sustaining you, by showing you mercy, by showing you justice. One way or another, God will be glorified. In verse 24, the word of God will increase. Notice how the the passage ends. The word of God will increase and will be multiplied. Jesus has already promised I will build my church. That train ain't stopping. The question is, will you jump on while there's still time for you?